We have been in a series, a five-part series called Refocus, a church refocused uh, from Revelation chapter 3, uh, 1 through 3. And it's a five-part series, and this is part five, but I've now made it a six-part series. And so we're going to do part six in two weeks. Next week, we'll have a special speaker, and that will be Bradley Hoffbauer from Team World Vision. Uh, Bradley is an excellent communicator. It's going to be very motivating, and uh, we're really looking forward to next week. So we want to get started on Revelation chapter 3 today, verses 1 through 13, and it's on page 850 if you picked up a, uh, one of the Bridge Bibles when you came in this morning. The economic crisis of 2008 and 2009 introduced to the American vocabulary a new term that wasn't thought about much before, and that term is toxic assets, toxic assets. To put it simply, just some of you may need reminded, assets are something of value and liabilities are something that cost you or something you owe a debt on. In the banking business, home loans are usually considered to be assets because they make money by loaning people money and they get interest. That's a good deal. And in case everything folds, the house is supposed to be worth uh, more than is owed on it. Um, and for years and years, this tended to be normal in the banking business. Then the banking houses, banking um, crisis regarding the mortgage hit in 2008 and 2009. For example, I'll give you a, a real-life example. My daughter's house in Olympia, Washington, in 2005, we purchased it for about 180 kind of a starter home out there. It's now worth about 140 and that creates a problem for the banking industry because they now have things that are assets for them that are no longer worth what they're supposed to be worth, and they are toxic assets. That means they are now a liability. So uh, that's what the banking uh, crisis has been about, and this new term, toxic assets. Um, toxic assets can also be spiritual issues. Things that were once beneficial became hurtful. For example, your sexuality is a great asset given to you by God. If you misuse it, it can become toxic or a toxic asset. For example, your education can be a great asset for you, something for good. But if your education puts God on the sidelines, it can become a toxic asset. Your job or your career can be a great asset provided uh, by God for you to meet your needs financially, to be a platform for uh, being a light to our world. But when your job or your career become the focus of your life, they become toxic assets. Acquiring money and possessions can be an asset under the lordship of Christ, but if Christ is put on the sidelines, then money and stuff become toxic. Your physical appearance or your ability, athletic ability, music ability, uh, things that you have skills in are assets. But when they become of first importance, they become toxic 
assets, and they are no longer assets, but they are a liability. The church in Sardis in Revelation chapter 3 focused on toxic assets. And that's what we want to look at, first of all, this morning in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And this is to the church, and this is, if you follow on your outline, this is to the church that lacks spiritual power. The church that lacks spiritual power. Uh, The church is in verse 1, Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. The church is Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, Jesus Christ is the speaker. And he is giving direction to the Apostle John to write to each church. Seven churches in Asia Minor. Um, And Jesus has handpicked these churches to send letters to. It's to the angel. And just to remind you, angel normally in the Bible refers to a supernatural heavenly angel like the angel Gabriel who has wings, according to the Bible, that angels have wings. And uh, I'm just saying they're supernatural. They're heavenly. They're invisible normally, okay? I believe in angels just as well as I believe in demons that are supernatural angels who are not following the true and living God. However, angels... Sometimes the word angel can be used. Of, angel means messenger. We're not there yet. Angel means messenger. And um, sometimes the angel can be a human messenger. And that was the case. It's used in John's disciples, of John the Baptist, as well as Jesus' disciples. Sometimes the word was used as a human messenger. I believe that the angel of the church of Sardis is a human messenger. It's probably the pastor of the church. And that John called the seven pastors of those seven churches to the Isle of Patmos where John is uh, being held in a prison colony and he is going to give this letter, these letters in the book of Revelation to these pastors and they're going to take this back to their churches. Okay, to the angel of the church in Sardis. Let me tell you just a comment about Sardis. Um, It's a a very important commercial center, 30 miles southeast of Thyatira, the last church. The city was wealthy with industries in jewelry, textiles, and dye, perhaps assets that might become toxic. The city, uh, it was a center for pagan worship like all the other cities that we've looked at. It was especially um, strong in uh, worship of Artemis or Diana. Artemis is the Greek name, Diana the, the Roman name. And uh, that's where a lot of um, ceremonial prostitution took place, where worship involved sexual activity. Now let's look at the map, just to remind you. So this is the map of all the seven churches. You see the little circle down at the bottom left there, Patmos. That's where John is. He's on an island, prison colony. We start, and then across, we go to Ephesus, bottom left, and then we worked our way up to, to Smyrna, then we went to Perg- uh, Pergamum, then Thyatira, and, and today we get to Sardis, Sardis and then we're going to do Philadelphia, and in two weeks we're going to do Laodicea. Uh, so you're, a lot of your Bibles have maps in the back, and uh, it's good to know the geography when you're reading the Bible. When you come up to a location you don't know, get a little curiosity and look it up in one of your maps in the back, and you get a picture. There's so much when you start to see the movement of what's happening. We come uh, next to the character of Christ. And also in chapter 1, each letter that we've looked at 
has a description of Jesus Christ from Revelation chapter 1. The Apostle John has a vision of Jesus, the resurrected Christ, in his glory. Not the Jesus that the disciples saw, but the resurrected Christ that showed off a little bit more who he really is. And so each uh, church receives a description here. And it's in Revelation 3, 1b, these are the words of him. So Jesus is speaking who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, you know who the seven spirits are, and you know who the seven stars are because Jesus told us in chapter 1. Let me uh, remind you, though, just in case you forgot. Um, The seven spirits refer to the Holy Spirit, and this is why. In Isaiah chapter 11, this is a passage about the Messiah. This is about Jesus, the promised one. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. That doesn't sound too exciting. But Jesse is the father of David, and the Messiah will be the son of David. So there is an offspring coming from this family. Verse 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. This is pretty unique here. This just didn't happen to anybody. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And here it is. It's a sevenfold description of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The Spirit of counsel and of power. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. That's seven. And that's when the Holy Spirit rested on the Messiah of Israel, Jesus. And so Jesus speaks here in Revelation the words of him who holds the seven spirits. You know what? Jesus is the one who ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. The Son is the one who sends the Spirit. And the seven stars, well, they're the seven angels. And the seven angels are probably the seven pastors. And Jesus is the one who holds those pastors, those messengers, those leaders. And that the interpretation is Revelation 1.20. The answer comes. The commendation uh, for this church is also in verse 1. It begins, and all the churches receive a commendation um, so far. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive. And that's a commendation. And that's not much. I know your deeds. That's the great thing about Jesus. Um, In chapter 1, he is the one who walks among the golden lampstands. Remember, the golden lampstands are the churches. Lampstands are supposed to hold up light, and the churches are the light of the world. And Jesus walks among the churches, and he says, I know your deeds to every one of them. I know who you are. I know what you've experienced. I know your suffering. I know your hardship. I know your struggles with sin and failure. I've seen the good things. I've seen your heart. And he says, uh, you have a reputation of being alive. Reputation is good. Um, you fooled a few people. That's where he's going to head with this. But they've had a good reputation in the past, and the reputation lives longer than reality, than the spiritual reality. Uh, They have been active. They've done a lot of things. They've been busy. They've had 
a church activity. They've, they've done a lot of church stuff. And, uh, but we come to the condemnation. Also in verse 1, Jesus said all these things in verse 1 already. But you are dead. That is not good to say to your church. You are dead. There's a spiritual deadness here. There's something that stinks here. This is the true nature of reality. You are dead. You have become spiritually insensitive. You have become spiritually callous. Some of you don't even know Christ personally. Spiritually dead. And he says in verse 2, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. You're dead. Wake up. You're not tracking spiritually. And this is kind of a disappointment here for Jesus. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Um, there is a remnant in the church that is hung in there and it's walking with Christ. But the vast majority have slipped and uh, be, have become insensitive. Some of those we would just say, we would just probably call them, you, we could use the world, uh, worldly Christian, carnal Christian, Christians who are walking in the flesh, walking without the power of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and some of those in the church, it's a professing church where they have people who uh, are religious and active, but... They're not the real deal. They're just doing the motions. They're copying other people, and they don't have it in here. They've never put it together about what Jesus did for them and what their purpose is. Um, and I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Uh, here's just a question for you. Are there things that you know God has wanted you to do, but you haven't done them, haven't completed them? yet. What is it that God has wanted you to do that you haven't followed through with yet? The correction comes in verse 3. He says, remember therefore what you've received and heard, obey it and repent. He says, go back to the basics. Remember what you've received and heard. What was it? Well, the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross, that he paid the penalty for their sins, for all of their sins, every one of them, and for the sins of the entire world. And that Jesus Christ died, he was buried, that proved his death, and then he was raised again to prove, on the, on the third day, to prove his victory over sin and death. And that the message is, if you believe what God has said about his son, you will have eternal life and your sins will be forgiven. That's the message. He says, I want you to go back to the basics. I want you to go back to what you've seen and heard. I want you to obey it. I want you to obey the gospel. And Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. He says, I want you to follow me. Go back to the basics. Go back to what you've seen and heard. Follow the basics. Be a follower of Christ not just a religious person, be a follower, do the things that Jesus commanded us to do. That's what he's asked this church to do. And then he says, uh, but, 
But if you do not wake up, because there's a chance you're not going to pay attention. There's a chance you won't hear what I'm saying. This is what Jesus is saying to the church at Sardis. He said, I will come like a thief, meaning it's going to be unexpected. And uh, you will not know what time I will come to you. It's going to be a surprise. And that's the whole teaching in the New Testament about when Jesus comes. We're not going to be able to calculate or predict it or plan on it. And he's going to come. The idea is he's coming suddenly. And all the New Testament teaches that what God wants for us is to be ready to live each day like today might be the day. And Jesus is saying, hey, if you don't wake up, I'm coming. And he's referring to the second coming of Christ, especially Matthew 24 and 25. So uh, what would help this church? What would help this church? John 15, 5 is a good reminder, reminder because these are the words of Jesus. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is the vine. You and I are supposed to be connected to him, and that's where we get our life. We are the branches. Our life comes from him. Our nourishment comes from him. We can't just do church going through the motions. That's, that's his whole message here. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing that has eternal significance, eternal value, something that will last for an eternity. It is not real fruit. And there needs to be a spiritual connection with Jesus. It's not about going through the motions. That's where this where the church was struggling here in Sardis. They were going through the motions. They were active and busy, but they were producing no fruit. And they appeared to be dead on the outside uh, to Jesus. They appeared to be dead. Uh, another passage from the Old Testament, which is the same idea, uh, Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, Not by my might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. It's not by my might. It's not by my human energy or strength. It's not by my power, human strategy or uh, human power or governmental power or money, the power of money. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what God wants from his people, to live and to serve by his power. Uh, the Apostle Paul reminds us in Galatians 5.16. So I say live by the Spirit. And that word to live also means to walk, which I prefer. You've heard me say. It, it means to, to walk by the Spirit. And I like it because I think of steps, baby steps, short steps. It's just one day at a time, one hour at a time, 15 minutes at a time. I take steps. And I walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I need to be reminded all day long because I, I have slippage in my life where I, I get off the track. And I, I, walk, I, I can think about starting off the day uh, about walking with Christ and asking him for help and getting his strength, reminding me that he's Lord and I'm not because I, I get kind of self-centered during the day. And then I get off the track and pretty soon I say something or my anger comes out. I do something and, oh, it's not Jesus here who's in charge. And I need to come back and realign and uh, walk by the Spirit. So I say live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. The cool thing is, if the Holy Spirit is in charge of my life, I don't lean towards sinful nature. And if he's in charge, I will not 
gratify sinful desires. As soon as I take charge, that's a possibility. Um, and then Galatians 5.25, just another way to talk about it. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Keep in step. Think about that during the day. Okay, you can go a few hours. You get off track a little bit. Okay, I've got to get back. And I keep in step. Got to get back on the walk. The, the challenge uh, for the church in Sardis comes in verses 4 through 6. And uh, starting with verse 4. And here's what Jesus says to the church. Yet you have a few people. Here's a faithful remnant. There are some born-again people here walking with Christ. You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. There's some God-honoring people in this church. And he says, uh, they have not soiled their clothes. This is, there's a lot of things that Jesus says to these churches directly that fit their context and their culture. For example, uh, Sardis was very strong in the textile industry and the dye industry. And so clothing, was they were all about clothes. It was an asset. And um, in some of the pagan worship, uh, anybody who went into a temple, one of these pagan temples, with dirty clothes, soil clothes, they were cast out. It was like condemned. And um, Jesus is turning the tables on, and uh, some of the people in the church do have soil clothes. That's the problem. And he's, he's not talking about physical clothing. He's talking, he's using a metaphor. He's talking about their lifestyles. The clothes they put on is the behavior and the attitudes they put on. Um, so some of them um, will walk with him dressed in white. That's an imagery for uh, holiness and righteousness. That's the clothing proper. That's the, um, the, the lifestyle that should accompany a follower of Christ. Who over, uh, he who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Just a quick comment here about the book of life. Um, it may well be that the book of life, because there's not a lot of information in the Bible about this, it may well be that everybody born... His name is in the book of life. And they stay in the book until they're marked out for judgment. And he who has, uh, let's see, uh, I will never blot out his name from the book of life. When a person faces judgment, their name is blotted out if they don't know Christ. This is not about losing salvation. Because an overcomer is one who has believed and is born again and is a genuine follower of Christ. Not a perfect person, but somebody who's seeking to follow Christ. Um, and then he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is what Jesus said to every church. And this, this is to us. Do you hear? He who has an ear. It's not about just hearing the words. It's about uh, hearing with understanding and then doing something about it. Hear and follow. That's what he's asking. Do you hear? Um, so the church at Sardis had toxic assets. They had resources and abilities, and they were so busy, uh, they could do church without Jesus. 
So here's a question I have for you. Do you try to live the Christian life without the power of Jesus? Do you try to do the Christian life without Jesus? His power, his strength. A um, couple, couple other questions here as we think about this. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit right now? You can know the answer to that question. Are you filled? I'm not saying are you indwelled. I'm saying are you filled with the Holy Spirit? He's in charge. Um, right now, do you live like your body belongs to God? Romans 12.1. Present your bodies as living sacrifices. Are you yielded to the Lordship of Jesus Christ right now? Do you do Christian activity in your own strength? Do you serve Jesus without consulting him, without asking for his help or his wisdom or his sensitivity or his leading? You know, it's so easy to do something like bridge kids. It's easy to be an usher. It's easy to serve anywhere and leave Jesus out. And yet, when we're connected and healthy and vital, stuff happens for God. And people get connected. And we grow. And um, as I mentioned all, all, uh, already, personally, I need to think about this all through the day. I need to be reminded every day. I need to be reminded several times a day just to get realigned, to get my heart realigned. Okay, that's the... Church of toxic assets. Let's talk about the church that remains faithful. This one's positive, okay? We got, this is the best one. This is a encouraging note. We're going to end on the strongest church, verses 7 through 13. The church to the church that remains faithful. The church is Philadelphia, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, to the pastor of the church in Philadelphia. And so Jesus speaks and he orders this church to be written to. John is writing it down. This is a city 28 miles south of Sardis. Let's see it on the map. So it's only 28 miles from Sardis to Philadelphia. And then we only have one church after this, the Church of Laodicea. And you can be grateful. I'm not going to do the Church of Laodicea today because we would be here until noon. Um, the character of Christ is also in verse 7. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. And he's speaking with authority. He is the one who is holy. Jesus is holy. Jesus is the one who is true. And he holds the key of David. That's a term that's not used. It's the only time it's used. There's one other time it's used in the Bible. It's used in Isaiah 22, 22. And it speaks of the one who holds the key of David. And it means he holds the treasury. of He holds the key that actually locks the door that has David's wealth, his gold in it. Jesus is the one who has the key of David because he's the son of David. And this is the Messiah connection right here. And Jesus holds the key to all the spiritual wealth of the kingdom of God, all of the wealth, all of the riches for eternity. He is the one who holds the key. Um, and then he goes on to say what, what, he, um, what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. This is about authority, the absolute authority on the part of Jesus, absolute power. What he opens, it's open. Nobody messes with it. Nobody has the authority. Nobody has the power to overcome 
what he opens or what he closes. That's going to mean a lot when it comes to opening the door to eternal life and the eternal kingdom. He opens it and he closes it. The commendation for this church comes in verses 8 through 10. And he says in verse 8, I know your deeds. There he is. I know. I've been tracking. I've been watching. I see your lives. I see your agony. I see your hurt. I see your pain. I see how you've been so faithful to serve me and to honor me. I've, uh, I've placed you before an open door that no one can shut. This is pretty powerful. I've opened a door of opportunity for service. I've opened a door for opportunity for the advancement of the gospel. Nobody can shut this. Demons can't mess with it. Satan can't mess with it. You have enemies, but the door of opportunity is open to you. I know that you have little strength. They've been pounded. They're drained physically. They're emotionally spent. But look at this. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. They've been down. It's been hard. They haven't had a lot of strength physically. They are hanging in there. And it's honored uh, Jesus. Revelation 3, 9. Uh, I will make those who are the synagogue of Satan. They have enemies who claim to be Jews, though they are not. Uh, synagogue of Satan, that's a pretty descriptive word. Synagogue, well, that's a Jewish gathering. It's supposed to be a Jewish, Jewish gathering of believers. Now, in this case, now, let me just explain. Sometimes we get confused about the Old Testament and the New Testament and who the Jews are and who Christians are. Just let me, uh, the first 39 books of the Bible were given to God's people, the the nation of Israel. And it was God's revelation to them, and it helped them get connected with God. And through that family came the Messiah, Jesus. And that was planned all the way through the Old Testament. Those Old Testament people are God's people. And when Jesus appeared on the scene, those people were to welcome him because he was their Messiah. And they would have received all the benefits of followers of Christ and forgiveness of sin and heaven as their home. And many of them in the, in the New Testament did become followers of Christ. Sometimes we say completed Jews. They, they took that next step. Some of them, and this is what we see here, some of them became enemies of Christians and they hated Christians and they thought Christians were all heretics and going to hell. And even the Apostle Paul pursued and persecuted Christians and had some put to death because he thought he was doing God's will. Now, here's a group, a synagogue of Satan. What's Jesus saying? And this isn't just my opinion. Jesus is using these words. He's saying, here is a religious community. They happen to be Jewish, the synagogue, but they are inspired satanically. They are inspired demonically. There's a hate in them for Christians. It's not that Jews are bad. It's just that this group is off. And uh, Jesus is saying, I know, I understand what it's like there. They claim to be Jews. They they claim to be followers of the true and living God, but they're not. They're liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. When might that be? Let me just make a suggestion. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, 9 through 11. Uh, We know this. Paul wrote this to the Philippian church. He said, speaking of Jesus, who was humbled 
put to death, and then ascended into heaven. Verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, Jesus, after his resurrection, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ uh, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I thought you sitting up here who can't see the screen would appreciate that. Um, thank you for your patience, even though we can't see the screen. Um, one day, the synagogue of Satan in Philadelphia will see this. Every human ever born on earth will experience this. Everybody will bow down, living and dead, because every soul is living. Some are separated from God. Some are united with God. And everybody will know there's a time in history coming where everybody will see Jesus for who he is. It's one of the most glorious things that will ever happen in the history of the world. And then uh, let me drop down to Revelation 3.10. And this is to the church of Philadelphia. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour, of trial, the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on earth. Jesus has made a promise to this church that, that he's going to keep them from the hour of trial. There is an hour of trial coming. And notice this. It's going to come upon the whole world. This is not a small thing here. It's not just a little persecution for one church. It's going to come on the whole world to test those who live on earth. This will be a great test for people on the earth. And it's a test yet future to this. And I also believe it's in the book of Revelation. It's a test that's coming to the entire um, world. The Apostle Paul had this same idea in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And he speaks of the church at Thessalonica. And he says, and, and their neighbors know, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So this church has a great testimony, the church at Thessalonica. They've turned from idols. Now they're serving the true and living God. And now to wait for his son from heaven. That's what the church does. They wait. That's what you're doing right now. You're waiting uh, for the Son from heaven, whom He, God, raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. The coming wrath is what I refer to. The coming wrath is this great time of testing on the entire earth. And uh, Paul says, Jesus is going to rescue the church, this church, from that coming wrath. They will not face that coming wrath. Um, Revelation chapter 6, verse 17. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The great day of wrath starts in Revelation chapter 6, and it goes through Revelation chapter 19. The day of testing that Jesus talks about in Revelation chapter 3 is coming in Revelation 6. We call it the tribulation. It's a seven-year period at least. Daniel's 70th week. I'm throwing lots of terms around there that we've talked about some in the past. It's a time of great testing. And Jesus says, I'm going to rescue you from this. You, the church, are not going to face it. And I personally believe that nobody in the church will face this who are true believers in Jesus Christ. No one will face Revelation 6 through 
19 on earth, but we'll face it in heaven uh, with Jesus. Condemnation? None. What a way to go out. You're doing great, church. No condemnation. Correction, verse 11, it's not much. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. I'm coming soon. I'm coming suddenly is the idea. Uh, Stay the course. Hold on to what you have. Keep doing what you're doing so that no one will take your crown. Don't swerve. Don't drift. Don't slide. Stay the course so that no one will take your crown. This is not about anyone taking salvation. It's about reward. A crown is a reward for those who believe. Some believers, they'll be given more rewards for faithfulness, for obedience. A crown is a reward. It's not salvation. It's not talking about losing salvation or even the possibility of losing salvation. The challenge is verses 12 through 13. He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. There again, the context and culture of the first century. In the pagan temples, sometimes priests, if they were uh, well-known and were honored, they were given a pillar in their temple with their name on it. That's really cool if you're a pagan priest in a pagan temple. Look what Jesus says. He who overcomes, you who believe genuinely and are born again, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. You get a pillar in God's temple. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of my sit, the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I also will write on him my new name. That's Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. It's, it's God's city coming to the earth, the new Jerusalem. It's kind of big. It's going to hold all you people and all the people from the beginning of time who have been true followers of God. And then he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. And the question is, is do we hear? Do we get it? Do we care? Uh, what should we do to remain faithful? Let me just throw one more verse up here. What should we do to remain faithful? 1 Timothy 4.7, train yourself to be godly. If you've been around, you see me use this a lot of times. Train yourself to be godly. What does that mean? Train yourself. That's me. I'm not going to train you. You train yourself. There's something you have to do. You have to, you have to uh, invest energy and time. You have to be intentional. Uh, when, you, when athletes train, what do they do? When musicians train, what do they do? They practice and they practice and they practice and they do the same things over and over again. They sharpen their skills. They train. Train yourself. So there are spiritual disciplines, just like there are physical disciplines or academic disciplines. Spiritual disciplines, like reading your Bible, is a discipline. If you read it regularly and daily, it's a discipline. It's not always a spiritual peak. It's just, it's a discipline. I do it. It's important. It's a priority. I do it. Prayer is a discipline. I do it. I'm told to pray, but it's a discipline. I forget to do it. It's easy to go off without praying. Pray is a discipline. Uh, Serving is a discipline. There's a lot of things. Even fasting can be a discipline. Yeah, Josh.
Not to say that we shouldn't strive for it, but we should want it in our hearts to read the Bible. Sure. We have it in our hearts, and we sit there and read the Bible ten times a day, but there's nothing in you compared to in our hearts. And, and I agree with you. Come right back. There's a command to us. Train yourself. There's some things we have to do to invest in our relationship with God. It is a relationship with God. It's not doing religion. It's not about, God, Are you? Ha- did I read enough Bible today to make you happy? That's not what it's about. But I read because I want to learn what God has. I want to learn what God says. I want to be nourished in my soul. And so my motives are different. But I still come back with discipline. I don't learn the Bible unless I read it. And if you, if you just hear, you know, you only hear this once a week, might help a little bit, but it's gonna, you're going to lose it quick in the week. That's why we do it every day. We, we can pray. Um, we talk to God. Uh, we can practice. You know, sometimes I need silence. That's going to be a discipline. Sometimes I need solitude. I need to be away from people so I can reconnect with God. Those are disciplines. We can do those things. And uh, verse 8, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. It's training for godliness. Physical training is good for this life. Training for godliness is, tr- is for good for everything, this life and, and eternity. This is a trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance. You see that? It's a trustworthy statement. And for this, we labor and strive that will we put our hope in the living God who is Savior of all men, especially for those who believe. So here's what we saw. One church tried to do the Christian life without Christ's power. One church remained faithful and brought great honor to Christ. Are you living the Christian life, just relying on Christ once in a while? Or are you seeking to live for Christ with his power every day? Um. Are you one who remains faithful and brings great honor to Jesus? Um, if you're living without Christ's power, Jesus says, wake up. And if you're following Christ, Jesus says, well done. So as the new year unfolds, as the new semester begins, this is a great time to refocus, reevaluate, recalibrate, and realign. Let's stand and pray. Thank you, Father, for uh, Revelation chapter 3 and for your letters to the seven churches that have helped us uh, to think about our lives and to think about our church and just to get uh, refired spiritually and to think about our priorities and to put you as Lord of our lives. God, it's my prayer that you would show us individually what it is if, if we have things that have become toxic in our life. I pray, God, that you would show us and help us identify that and we'd just be willing to say, God, I don't want to do that anymore. I want Jesus to be first. I want Jesus to be Lord. And God, I pray that you will help us all to be faithful. I pray that you will give us your strength and your power just to hang on and to continue to walk with you no matter what's coming. Amen.